Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, with me this week is Simon Schuster. He was, up until very recently, the Time Magazine's correspondent in Berlin. Prior to that, in Moscow. I'm sure I'm probably missing a few other cities in different hemispheres, but now I'm happy to say he's, uh, he's right here in New York City and not that far down the road from where I am in Brooklyn. Simon's in Brooklyn, I'm in Queens, but it's a bike journey away. And we were discussing over drinks uh, about a week ago, having him on the podcast to talk about a story that frankly has not got much attention, but should have. It hasn't got much attention, I think, for two reasons. Number one, people are exhausted with all things to do with Ukraine and its role in not it, the country, but various Ukrainian actors' role in political interference in the United States, particularly as they've been seconded by members of the Trump inner circle. This, of course, led to Donald Trump's impeachment several months ago, or God, it was it a year ago now? I mean, so much has happened since, but Simon filed <laughs> a very good piece uh, last week, or a week and change ago for time, about the Senate-led investigation into this new interference campaign or program. And I'm going to let him talk about his his reporting on that and also kind of flesh out some of the key players in this uh, investigation and how they uh, interrelate to Rudy Giuliani, a few, I think, now indicted members of Giuliani's orbit, including Lev Parnas and uh, Igor Fruman, whose company Fraud Guarantee still cannot be beat as a telegraphing of sinister intention. Um, <laughs> But well, maybe it can be. I don't know. Time's going to tell on that one, and it's a couple of weeks till the election. Simon, welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's a lot I can pick up on from that uh, very gracious introduction. Um, I, I guess not to assume, you know, too much knowledge and recollection among among listeners uh, about what happened, because as you said, a lot of these events feel like ancient history. So, just for a bit of background. You know, when Giuliani, right around spring of 2019, really started telegraphing his interest in dirt on Biden and the Biden family, he got a lot of people kind of taking that bait and offering him things responding to that solicitation for dirt, for politically embarrassing material, most of them from Ukraine. And Giuliani then proceeded to meet with, engage with, a lot of these individuals who were essentially, you know, answering the call. Oh, you want dirt on Biden? I know this. I got this document. I have a bit of that. And, and essentially, you know, flooding him with a whole bunch of information. Now, the issue that I write about in this in this piece last week is that a lot of these people have connections that are alarming in terms of their their relationship to Russian security services. Um, this has been alarming for American counterintelligence officials. Uh, who have said in private briefings on Capitol Hill that uh, Giuliani needs to be real careful, and certainly the Senate investigators need to be real careful about where this the supposed documents related to Biden and Hunter Biden, uh, where they're coming from, who's providing this information, who are these people who answered Giuliani's call for dirt on the Bidens? And, and that's, that's a big question. And when you try to answer that question, you come up with a pretty diverse and, and interesting and colorful cast of characters. They're different. You know, it's, it's not like you can say, oh, they're all Russian agents or, or anything like that. That would just be lazy and inaccurate, even, even though some, you know, democratic operatives have made blanket statements like that. We as journalists have to be a bit more scrupulous in terms of saying who's who, um, what are their connections? And, and that's a bit of what I tried to lay out over the course of a year what were the attempts by people connected to Russia and Russian intelligence services and the Kremlin to feed information to Giuliani about the Bidens? And what were these connections to the Kremlin or the Russian intelligence services if they existed? 
you know, you write about this guy, Andrei Derkach. Can you talk a little bit about his role? And he has been identified by the U.S. Treasury Department, I believe, as an active Russian agent. Yeah, Russian agent. What is the basis for their identification of him as such? What in your reporting would you say has sort of um, corroborated or substantiated these allegations? What What's his, his sort of CV, as, as is known? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot he's got up to that we, we don't know about. Yeah, his, his CV has a few red flags. One is that he studied, before going into politics, he studied in Moscow. He's a Ukrainian member of parliament, but in his former life, he studied at a, a Moscow Academy for Spies. It's one of the main schools, universities for um, FSB agents. Mm -hmm. So red flag, um, you know, in terms of his connections. <laughs> right. Now, but I should say, not everyone who studies at that school goes on to become an active agent of the FSB or whatever, you know, right. you could go there and then go into blogging or something else. So that's one. Another interesting thing to keep in mind about Derkach is his father, his family relationship. So his father was a senior uh, officer in the KGB in Ukraine in Soviet times. And after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, he became the head of Ukraine's intelligence agency, the successor agency to the KGB. He was involved in all, you know, his father, Leonid Derkach, the father of Andrei Derkach, was involved in all kinds of dirty tricks on behalf of the, the former president Kuchma in Ukraine. So his, his father, so basically Andrei Derkach, this associate and source for Rudy Giuliani, comes from a family with deep ties to very senior levels of the KGB and later the KGB's successor agencies. Red flag number two, again, if you're the offspring of a senior KGB agent, that doesn't necessarily make you a KGB agent, but it's something to um, be aware of if you're looking for right. these kinds of concerns from a counterintelligence perspective. Yeah, and the third one that comes to mind is that it's earlier in his career, as a member of parliament, he was affiliated with a the pro-Russian political party in Ukraine. Currently, he is an independent member of parliament, not affiliated with any political party. But some years ago, he was connected to a pro-Russian political party there. And that political party was a kind of conduit or funnel of Russian influence through oligarchs and through you know, political connections for Russia and the Kremlin. Um, so that party affiliation is also kind of interesting. So it's fascinating to me because, again, what has now colloquially been dubbed Ukraine Gate as opposed to Russia Gate was the, the premise for the, the president's impeachment. For months, Americans were having it fed down their throats about, you know, this infamous call with Zelensky in which he essentially was offering a kind of quid pro quo arrangement, give me dirt on Biden or investigate Burisma and implicate Hunter Biden, uh, and we'll release the arms that you've requested, including... Um, the anti-tank missiles, the javelins, and so on. What is new about this? Is this a reconstruction of sort of how that went down? But isn't it also the case that Giuliani and company have continued since the impeachment to essentially kind of re-up this program or this campaign of relying on some dubious Ukrainian political actors to give them dirt, opposition research on Joe Biden and his family members? I mean, why such a brazen kind of sequel effort to something that was... <laughs> litigated in the national and international press, and then the subject of, of congressional impeachment of the president. In your view, I'm not asking, yeah. probably don't know what's going on inside Rudy Giuliani's mind any more than he does on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, it seems to be kind of a hiding in plain sight and almost, you know, shockingly bold maneuver. Yeah, but I think it, it 
you know, it makes sense to me if you look at the statements that came out of President Trump's mouth and his various surrogates and supporters after he was acquitted in the Senate. So he was acquitted, I believe it was February 5th. And after that, they declared victory and they, they declared that the entire uh, impeachment vote and the proceedings, the impeachment inquiry were all fake, a hoax, and so on. And they, in, in many ways, proceeded we don't have enough time to go into here, but many of the things that the sort of problematic behavior that came up uh, during the impeachment inquiry continued apace and was revived and indeed accelerated after Trump's acquittal in the Senate, um, mm -hmm. which I believe, again, you know, he and his allies took as, uh, well, our hands are free now. We, we can we can go about our business um, because there were no consequences for the behavior, essentially. He was impeached, but he wasn't. That's where it ended. It didn't have any any particular effect on his uh, ability to govern. Mm -hmm. So um, focusing on, on one of the things that was revived and um, accelerated after the acquittal in the Senate, was Giuliani's effort. So Giuliani, after, you know, er earlier this year, after Trump was acquitted for pressuring Ukraine to produce this dirt on the Bidens, Giuliani continued his effort to collect this dirt and to pressure or encourage various agencies and arms of the American government to investigate Joe Biden and his son and their business dealings, political dealings in Ukraine. Um, he took this stuff to the Department of Justice. And indeed, in February, shortly after the vote to acquit President Trump, Attorney General Bill Barr held a press conference um, where he confirmed that indeed the Department of Justice is receiving information from Ukraine via Rudy Giuliani. They've created a, quote, intake process for this material. And they're, they're sort of trying to vet it and see what's valuable, what's true, what's important, and so on. So the DOJ was receptive to what Giuliani was providing. At the same time, Giuliani was trying to get various other branches of the American government to investigate Biden. Essentially, they failed to get Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. That was the main goal of Ukraine Gate. They wanted Zelensky's government in Ukraine to announce an investigation of the Bidens. And to their credit, and with some luck, the Ukrainians avoided that. They never announced such an investigation. So essentially, Giuliani then took that mission to America and, and mm -hmm. he continued pressuring American government agencies and, and investigative bodies to do the same thing, open investigations of the Bidens. He succeeded in only one place, the U.S. Senate, as far as we know. There, there may be some investigation that we're not really aware of in the Department of Justice, but as far as we know, the, the success he had, Giuliani had, was in the Senate, where two committee chairmen, Senator Grassley and Senator Johnson, they did open the investigation that essentially Giuliani has, has been pushing for. And, and they opened that last year, and it really continued rolling this year, again, after the acquittal of President Trump. And that's where essentially they, they got what they wanted. They were able to present a lot of the dirt. I won't say all of it, because some of it was kind of vetted out as just too tainted by Russian connections. Um, but a lot of the kind of basic gist of a lot of these conspiracy theories and claims about the Bidens made it into a formal document with the, the seal of the U.S. Senate on it. And that made it into kind of the, the bloodstream of the certainly the right wing media ecosystem uh, and uh, in that way reached many of Trump's supporters and many other American voters with this kind of halo of officialdom over it with the, with the U.S. Senate saying like, look, we investigated this. We took this information from Ukraine. We took this information from Giuliani. And here we produced a report that came out uh, last week sort of covering a lot of this ground. So what did Hunter, Hunter Biden do in Ukraine and so on and so forth?
but it's kind of a tilted halo. I mean, I, I saw that Chris Miller, who covers Ukraine very well for BuzzFeed, reported that um, you know after these disclosures, and particularly Derkacz's role as an intelligence agent involved in all of this, you know, one American news network was scrubbing their website completely of yeah. any reference to him as a credible source. You know, on the one hand, okay, it does enter the American bloodstream, but on the other, it does look like, a, at least in part, another Russian active measure to try and help Trump and hurt Biden. And, you know, this came not so far after the Senate subcommittee, intelligence subcommittee report, uh, I think the fifth volume of their mm -hmm. investigation into the U.S. election, in which they name Konstantin Kalimnik as an active Russian intelligence agent or officer, which is a major dis disclosure and moves the needle from Mueller and really puts a Russian spy, if not in the heart of the Trump campaign, then just adjacent to it, because Kalimnik, as we knew, was the mm -hmm. business partner for a long time to Paul Manafort. And now you have this guy, Dirkoch, kind of playing the Kalimnik role in a separate operation and that is, mm -hmm. is taking place just in advance of a forthcoming U.S. presidential election. The kind of broad theme or motif of this conversation is Russian spies keep turning up whenever there's a request to, you know, yeah. dig up crap on whoever's running against Donald Trump. And it doesn't seem like that's a coincidence. And again, despite the media spotlight, despite the congressional and counterintelligence scrutiny paid on all of this stuff, they keep coming back like bad pennies. That's just yeah. a thought. I'll, I can leave that there because I want to ask you about another character involved in all of this, mm -hmm. Dimitro Firtash. I've reported on before. You've, I'm sure, been following his peregrinations, or I guess not. He's under house arrest in Vienna, waiting extradition to the United States for financial fraud, dating back many years. Explain who Firtash is, what his role is in this whole kind of, you know, shadowy opposition research exercise, and what you think he might be looking to get in exchange for it. In other words, mm -hmm. clearly he's facing legal hot water in the US and, and also extradition to the US. Is this his way of sort of helping Trump in order to scuttle any DOJ indictment and to, to put paid to the extradition? Talk a little bit about Firtash and also his history mm -hmm. in Ukraine and his connection to Moscow. Yeah, well, well, he he emerged in in the public eye in the mid two thousands with a very lucrative middleman role in the European gas trade. Essentially, he was outed as the the man behind this company that was taking gas from Russia and Central Asia and reselling it to Ukraine and for further resale to the European Union. This is an enormous trade, you know, right. billions and billions of dollars per year. Uh, and Firtash somehow uh, got himself in the mid 2000s, right smack in the middle of it as a conduit for all this gas. And of course, that allowed him to make an enormous fortune because he was able to essentially buy cheap from Russia and resell uh, high in Ukraine and, and further on in Europe. And he got this position with the blessing of uh, President Putin. So the, the arrangement that put him in this very lucrative role would have been impossible if Putin had not signed off on it. So that, to my mind, is the most kind of un undisputable suggestion or, or indication that, that he is close to the Kremlin, that he earned his fortune with the blessing and in partnership with the Kremlin and its gas structures. You know, there are other more disputed uh, points about Firtash's biography, such as his alleged connections to Russian organized crime. A lot has been written about that. He denies any connection to organized crime. And I think we don't have much time to get into <laughs> all of that now. Well, he, did, he did tell uh, the former U.S. ambassador that, yeah, you know, you kind of had to work with Mogilevich back in the 90s to do anything, right? Yeah. Uh, but, oh, that, that those days are long gone or, or they're, they're behind me. So he denied being a mobster. He just 
acknowledged that he had to kind of navigate the mafia-infested waters of Russian-Ukrainian business way back when, right? Yes, and I, I talked I talked to Firtash about that conversation he had with the ambassador at length. Yeah, essentially he said, yeah, I know this mob boss. Um, he's famous in Ukraine. Everybody knows him. That doesn't mean I was his partner. He didn't deny, you know, having met the guy, but he said we never had a business relationship. That's a, that's a more kind of cloudy pond to right. dig through. I think for our purposes, what's important to understand is that he does have a deep, lasting financial connections to Vladimir Putin's circle and, and the Kremlin. Skipping ahead then to closer to the present day, last year, he hired a few of Giuliani's close associates to work as his lawyers slash interpreters, fixers. As, as you mentioned, kind of when introducing Firtash, Firtash is in a lot of legal trouble. He's facing an indictment for on corruption charges out of Chicago, and he's been fighting extradition to Chicago to face those charges since 2014, so a very long time now. And he's been fighting those charges out of Vienna. And you know, if you if you're fighting extradition and an indictment like that, you need the best lawyers you can get. And he's certainly hired some of the best lawyers money can buy. I mean, his it's a dream team. You know, forget about O.J. Simpson's dream team. Like the lawyers working for Firtash are one of them is Michael Chertoff who was former Homeland Security Secretary. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of powerful people working for him. Uh, but last summer, uh, summer 2019, he hired um, a few associates of Giuliani. And around that time, Firtash's kind of trove of legal documents became a very valuable resource for Giuliani and, and his associates in terms of getting dirt on Biden. It's, it's a little hard to explain, but essentially when these friends of Giuliani went to work for Firtash, they had a chance to look through his legal files. In those legal files, they found uh, affidavits and statements that were, uh, at least appeared to be damaging politically to the Biden family. So there, there was a kind of synergy of interests there. Firtash, what he wanted out of this relationship was help fighting his extradition, essentially mm -hmm. to stay out of prison in the United right. States. Uh, and what the Giuliani and, and Giuliani, team Giuliani wanted was dirt on the Bidens. And in this way, well, and a paycheck, I guess. And in this way, they sort of began to work together last summer. And out of that relationship, Giuliani got some of the, the documents, some of the most kind of the documents that he, he used uh, most aggressively on cable news and in his blog and everywhere to say, aha, look, here's this document. It proves that Biden is corrupt. What Giuliani habitually failed to mention in these appearances is that that document came from Dmitry Firtash's legal team. You know, I've reported on this, you know, over the course of the year, Giuliani's kind of backed off from some of these documents just because of people have pointed out, hey, where'd you get that? Right. And uh, it's, it's become quite difficult for him to use those documents with a straight face. But Firtash, you know, this, this kind of cast of characters that we talked about in the beginning, Firtash was one of the people who sort of answered the call for Giuliani, from, from mm -hmm. Giuliani to provide dirt on the Bidens, right? He and his, his legal team and his associates came forward made a partnership with Giuliani and his Giuliani's team of lawyers and friends to sort of work on this together. And I, I don't think that relationship continues. Uh, I, I think they've they've sort of cut off ties after a lot of the scrutiny that, that uh, you know, exposed that relationship. But um, it's important to keep in mind that Dmitry Firtash is one of these people, a Ukrainian with deep Russian contacts, who uh, answered Rudy's call for dirt on the Bidens. And so you see them as more taking an opportunity or, or, or seizing an opportunity that was kind of very much, you know, in the air, Giuliani putting out this kind of call for 
any and all support from whatever comers rather than being, let us say, somebody who was orchestrating or conspiring to create a nice little package for sale to Giuliani and to Trump's Confederates. In other words, Firtash was just, he saw his chance and he took it. I, I think there was there was a lot of kind of alignment of interests. You know, mm. I don't know to what extent Firtash may have been motivated by Russian political interests. You know, we know that he maintains close friendships and contacts with various people in Vladimir Putin's circle and, and businessmen close to Putin. But I don't know to what extent, you know, he would have been some kind of conduit for information out of Russia. Mm -hmm. Maybe, but that doesn't seem to have been his prime motivation. His main motivation was to stay out of prison. And Giuliani, because he has connections to Bill Barr, he has connections to the Trump administration, and so do Giuliani's you know, various associates, um, they were at least able to promise Firtash, as they did, that, hey, if you help us with this whole Biden thing, we might be able to help you with your legal troubles in the United States. That was that relationship. So it's a complicated one. It doesn't fit so neatly into the rubric of Putin sending whatever sure. damaging information through uh, some active Russian agent, but it's part of the overall picture of what happened when Rudy went digging in and around Ukraine. I remember when the phone call between Trump and Zelensky was publicized, a real anxiety in Ukraine. Oh, great. You know, like we want to be in the news in one way, but not like this, right? We don't want to be dragged into an American domestic political mm -hmm. scandal, which is exactly what happened. But at the time, you know, Zelensky was still new in his administration. His popularity was like 70 something percent. It was very high. And most of the Ukrainians I talked to said, look, you know, yeah, he doesn't come across all that great in the transcript, but he's he has to flatter a guy like Trump, right? I mean, he, you know, he is the more vulnerable party in this bilateral dynamic. You're not going to flatly say, no, Mr. President, you're blackmailing me or you're offering me some illegal situation. So they kind of gave Zelensky the benefit of the doubt and credit. But it seems now his popularity is waning and it, the benefit of the doubt has kind of dissipated a little bit. Can you talk about in any way, has this, I mean, because Americans have a very short attention span and we're, we've taken our eye off Ukraine, even though, as, as you've reported and you've just spent the last half hour discussing, the Ukraine element or factor in, in this American political election has not gone away. Has this whole thing with Firtash, Giuliani, Trump, also the kind of airing of, of Ukrainian dirty laundry through the impeachment process, has that ultimately hurt Zelensky as a president? I don't think so, not in terms of his popularity. I mean, I, I was reporting on um, all these issues last fall and into winter, like September October, November, December, I was I was in Kyiv. As the impeachment inquiry was really unfolding, I was watching it from Kyiv, and, and it was very interesting to observe how little the Ukrainians cared about it. Ukrainian voters, people, journalists, you know, it, it was covered on TV news, but it was not blanket coverage like we had in the United States. And I think when the Zelensky readout came out, it did not, as I recall, hurt Zelensky's popularity. It wasn't seen as him uh, kowtowing or submitting himself to Trump's will. And again, as, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, the Ukrainians managed through a mix of stalling, good luck, and kind of clever messaging to avoid announcing the investigations that Trump and Giuliani wanted. They did not do that. And when I, when I talked to, to Zelensky and his staff, they were very uh, eager to point this out. They said, mm -hmm. we ne yes, there was pressure, but we never did it. You know, maybe if there hadn't been a whistleblower in the White House who exposed all this, if there hadn't been an impeachment inquiry, maybe the Ukrainians would eventually have caved. I think that's very possible, maybe even likely, but they didn't. So 
possibly also for that reason, it didn't really harm Zelensky in, in Ukraine. I, I, I don't think it was nearly as big an issue there, weirdly enough, as it was in the United States. So all the political casualties have been domestic, not foreign from this. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's been a lot of churn and turnover in the Zelensky administration, too. But the people who have fallen there, you know, a lot of them are connected in one way or another to what we in America call Ukraine gate. But the reasons for their downfall tend to have to do with much more local issues, corruption scandals, connections to oligarchs, internal power battles. Like this scandal is an American scandal. Yeah. But even Kolomoisky's uh, recent legal problems abroad. I mean, obviously, he's connected to Zelensky because of the TV channel that he financed, which made Zelensky a household name, a servant of the people. That has no bearing on domestic political fortunes in Kiev. Kolomoisky is sort of this tainted figure internationally now as one of these dirty oligarchs that Zelensky was elected to try and rid from the system. Yeah, that was definitely a, a big issue for Zelensky's administration and a, a cloud that certainly was was hanging over him at the beginning of his presidency and, and in some ways still. That's sort of a, you know, a Ukrainian question. Is this president uh, himself either beholden to oligarchs or uh, himself an oligarch, which happened with the previous president, Poroshenko, who's a, a billionaire, you know, yeah. chocolate tycoon and very much in the oligarch class. So that's what Ukrainians really, I think, care about more. They, they want to know, are you corrupt. Did we go through this revolution in 20, 2004 and then again in 20, 2014 to rid ourselves of corruption only to have our leaders still be beholden to or belonging to the oligarch class? And that's what Ukrainians ask themselves. And that's the test that Ukrainian leaders constantly have to go through. You know, um, they have to on the one hand, maintain popularity by distancing themselves as much as, as feasible from oligarchs and, and other corrupt interests. But in order to operate and get anything done in Ukraine, from my observations, it's very difficult without help from the oligarchs because uh, they control so much of the capital, so many right. of the television stations, so much of the industry. They employ so many people that um, it's very difficult for a Ukrainian leader to get anything done without cooperation from the oligarchs. And of course, they demand quid pro quos, <laughs> left, right, and center, yeah. when, they, when they give assistance politically or otherwise or financially to this or that administration in Ukraine. So that's the conversation that Ukrainians kind of have internally. Whether that had much bearing on the kind of Ukraine gate as we know it with the Bidens and all that stuff, maybe because, you know, Hunter Biden was on the board of a company that belonged uh, belongs to an oligarch, Zlochevsky, and he was certainly involved in many uh, corruption investigations and so on. But it's it's a mess. And um, again, you know, in, in terms of what the Ukrainians care about, they care much more about having a sense that their president is not again serving his the interests of his own friends and oligarch allies. That he's serving the people, like Zelensky's the name of Zelensky. Right, party, yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. Promises. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, Simon, uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but I, that was a very comprehensive and uh, intelligible. <laughs> I hope so. Deep layer, very murky subject matter. I mean, it's you take your eye off these things for like five minutes and you're completely lost as to what's going on and how it's gone on. So, but we must have you back and to my viewers, both of them, I guess, <laughs> uh, follow Simon's reporting at uh, Time Magazine. And um, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Good to be with you.